Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, we are, we have been, we are in, and I'm sure we will continue to be in uh, unique and intense and amazing times right now um, as we are in the midst of changes that are happening globally on the planet dealing with coronavirus and I'm sure, you know, COVD-19 and I'm sure many of the other things that, that are stirred up inside of you, uh, where, wherever you are in your process, whenever you're listening to this uh, podcast uh, episode, I trust that you and your families are well. We've had some incredible guests on uh, in the last weeks. Uh, you know who they are. And though over the last weeks on the Soul Talk podcast, we've had everyone from Neil Donald Walsh and Lynn Twist and, and, you know, over the months prior, Robin Sharma and, and on and on and on. So today's episode is going to be no different. I'm very excited about my guest today. I had the opportunity to meet uh, this amazing human about, uh, I would say, a couple of years ago now, even though it doesn't feel that way, at a master, business mastermind called Genius Network in Phoenix, Arizona. And we, you know, I was really touched when I, I remember sharing with him that I was in the process of, of launching my paperback book. And uh, it, it seemed like I might hit the New York Times bestseller list. And this was one guy who just showed up and was so excited and just so generously wanted to support and rally people to support. So I was very much touched by uh, his, his generosity. Uh, he's an organizational psychologist, best-selling author of a book you may have read, Willpower. Check this, Willpower doesn't work. We're going to get into some of that. Uh, his work has been viewed by millions of people monthly. You may have read some of his work too, featured in For For Fortune, Forbes, CNBC, Cheddar, Big Think, uh, Inc. Psychology Today. He is the number one writer on Medium. Uh, this is something I'm actually very impressed with. Uh, literally in one year, uh, him and his wife, Lauren, they, they literally went from having zero kids to five. Can you imagine going from zero to five kids in one one year. I mean, the thought of going from zero to one kid is, is crazy, but zero to five, we're going to talk about that as well. And uh, I'm actually excited to also talk to him about his new book, Personality Isn't Permanent. Welcome to the conversation, Ben Hardy, Benjamin Hardy, or should I say Dr. Ben Hardy. Whatever you Welcome. want, you can call me Ben. <laughs> but uh, happy, so happy to be with you. Very happy to be with you. It's a pleasure. I always love your energy and uh, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed watching you and learning from you for the past few years. Awesome, brother. It's great to reconnect. Listen, uh, for those that may not know your background, I really, I, I kind of like delving into your background first and I have a whole bunch of questions I want to deep dive, deep dive into. Organizational psychologist, writer on Medium, author, your books are really, you know, I really enjoyed Willpower Doesn't Work. What was your journey to kind of 
what was your journey to, to even get to this point on this path? How, how did you go into organizational psychology and writing? And, you know, like, was, was there a moment in your life? Was it always in your trajectory? Did you always know? Was there a specific traumatic event? Was it parents that put you on the path? How the hell did this happen? Uh, well, I will say that trauma is definitely one of the big things that predicts and shapes personality for sure. Without question. Um, there were a few big things that happened in my life that ultimately led me to becoming who I am. Uh, I'll start with a little bit of background. When my par- my parents got divorced when I was 11 years old and my father became a, a heavy drug addict. Like we're talking the whole nine yards. He did everything. And me and my brothers were living literally in his house while it was happening. So like for a few years, his house became like a literally a drug infested crazy place filled with crazy people, like drug paraphernalia everywhere. Um, and that was really crazy. At some point we had to remove ourselves from the equation and live with my mom and she was moving from apartment to apartment. So like I kind of had a really interesting Mm -hmm. upbringing. Um, I I actually, to be honest with you, I grew up with a a strong faith in God. And I know that you've talked about this for yourself as well. Um, and so I kind of was just watching everything that was happening. It was very interesting to me. Uh, mm-hmm. I definitely was not thinking I'd be like a psychologist or like a writer at this point. I was very much just in. So the view, the trauma can be viewed in one of two ways. Usually like one is a capital T trauma where some event occurs and it shapes your narrative and your identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is just lower T trauma, which is essentially you in a chaotic environment where you're just kind of in fight or flight nonstop. Mm-hmm. That was kind of me. Um, I barely ended up graduating high school and was doing nothing with my life. To be honest with you, I was playing World of Warcraft all day. Uh, And I ultimately ended up deciding to serve a church mission. That was was kind of how I decided to escape the situation. I left for a few years, served a church mission, totally unplugged, totally reset. I did reconnect with my father right before I left. Um, He ended up quitting all of the drugs and things that he was doing while I was gone. Uh, He's, you know, totally changed himself. Uh, He and I have a brilliant relationship. Um, and he's, he's a very transformational figure and I'm very proud of him. And we, you know, and I don't view the past in negative terms at all. I, I think that the past should be viewed as this happened for me, not to me. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't be who I am today without that. So I'm really grateful for all of that stuff. But actually the thing that got me really interested in psychology and in writing actually was while I was on my mission, uh, I was shocked at how fast I was able to change as a person. I was shocked at how much my life changed, how much I changed. I went from basically being like, kind of just someone with zero direction to someone with like all sorts of leadership abilities, focus. I did tons of journaling, filled stacks and stacks of journals, uh, read just tons of books and just was just falling in love with learning. I was also doing all sorts of community service and it was just a really transformational experience. I had a, I had great leaders that helped me to kind of let go of the past and help me to set goals. Mm. Um, and just kind of going through that whole process got me interested in psychology. And so when I got home, uh, from that mission experience, I just jumped into school, started studying psychology, you know, ended up going to the PhD program, got married, and then we did the whole foster care system thing. And so it's just, you know, I, I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was on that experience when I was about age 20 or 20 or 21. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you, you talked about, uh, kind of going into this mission experience, one, like one person and then coming out, like you, you were surprised by how fast you could change. Now, why did that change happen so fast? What, what, was the, what, what facilitated that change in such a way that, I'm not, I don't want to say you became a different person. I don't know if that would be correct, but you really started tapping into I would it. say I did. At least I, I, like, like I, 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 yeah, I, there's a lot of things. Obviously, there's, you know, transformational aspects of a relationship with God that are really big. But I think there's other elements as well. You know, I wanted change. I did not, I, mm-hmm. I, I proactively made the decision to go on that trip. <clears throat> I put myself into a new environment. I had a new role. I was no longer surrounded by the same peers. 
uh, I did have a, a really powerful purpose. I think purpose is huge for transformation. And so mm-hmm. in that context, and as a, as a missionary in that role, not only was I doing new things, you know, doing new things is very big. You know, I was in a new situation doing new things. I was no longer playing World of Warcraft every day. I was, you know, reading good books and going door to door, knocking on doors, teaching people about God, but also I was doing crazy community service. Like by just radically doing new things with a really meaningful purpose, I was able to uh, go through a lot of shifts. I think, but I, I would say that my transformation was more than a lot of the transformation I saw in some of the other missionaries. I mean, a lot of them were having powerful experiences as well, but I was, I was a seek, I was seeking change. You know, I was, I was reading books. I was journaling. I was really processing things. Uh, and I was really proactive. I mean, I was just like, I wanted to learn more and more. I mean, I was wow. reading tons of books and I was, I was acting very faithfully too. By faithfully, I mean, I was acting courageously. Like I would do things that, you know, was what you could say was out of character, was out of character for my former self. You know, I would go out and do stuff that was bold and courageous and just trying things that were, you know, so I think a lot of that stuff really transformed me and, and, and opened me up and made me more flexible and, and built my confidence. And, you know, then you can just start to grow as a person and start to decide who you want to be versus being who you were. Mm. I, I, I have a specific question, but you, you said you were doing things that were out of character. Like, I guess why? You know, I mean, it's like, I, know I wanted to, I wanted to, you just, but, uh, but, look, but lots of people, Ben, lots of people want to, right. They, they want to do shit. They want to do things, but they don't, or they don't feel they can. And here you are just saying, I just did it. I mean, like you make it sound so easy. So like, there's- well, there was a lot to it. You know, I was, you know, you have to say I was in a radically different environment. I had right. a new persona, you know, it would have been much, mm-hmm. it would have almost been impossible. I would argue it would have been impossible to do that if I was still around my same friends. You know, if mm-hmm. I was still just Ben Hardy, who was trying to go to college, I wouldn't have been able to go through such a change. Um, I was in a totally different situation and I was in a different role. I was a missionary. And so that's mm-hmm. a big part of it. But mm-hmm. even as a missionary, a big part of what I was doing was I was studying um, how to be successful in that role. And then I was trying. I was actually trying. You know, so rather than, you know, and none of my actions were perfect, you know, but I was being bold and trying things. And I think that, you know, that's a big part of it is just trying and, you know. Yeah. You, you make but, mistakes. But, so, it's, so none of it's easy. But, you know, for me, I have to say a lot of it, I was pretty fed up with kind of how my life was. I mean, it was really rough for a lot of years, you know, as far as just not being in a good background, not being in a yeah. good environment. I mean, I had felt what, what I felt, honestly, when I, when I started this new situation, I felt pure liberty. I, I felt pure freedom oh, because I felt oh. like I was stepping into a situation where I could then be who I wanted to be. Right. Um, and so, I mean, there's, yeah. You said I was a missionary and it's almost like that, that, was maybe already an, a kind of identity shift for you. To it say, was a huge identity shift. I'm a missionary and wow, I'm not like this Warcraft playing guy. I'm, I'm a missionary and that, I think that identity of being a missionary maybe brought out certain things within you that you stepped into perhaps. So in terms of like your book, you know, personality isn't permanent. A lot of times we think and we hear people say, oh, it's, it's just who I am. I'm just, I'm born this way, right? I'm just, I've always been this way. I'm going to be this way. I got to like, I have, to, I have to love and accept myself this way because this is who I am. So when you say personality isn't permanent, number one, what do you mean by personality isn't permanent when we really think, no, man, I've been this way my whole life. What the hell do you mean it's not permanent? I need to learn to 
love myself this way. And so, and if it's not permanent, then who the hell are we if we're not our personality? Yeah, I love the question. It is not permanent. I will just say that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, research is very clear on that. Your personality is going to change whether you're intentional or not. You know, there's what's called longitudinal research, which is basically research over time. And the longer the gap between when you measure your personality, which we can go into that, there's terrible ways to measure it and there's better ways. But um, the longer the gap between when you actually, like, let's just say, take a personality test, the diff- the more non-correlated those tests will be. Uh, if you take tests in different environments, you're going to get different scores. I actually am not necessarily a believer in personality tests, to be honest with you. Most of them are non-valid. Um, tests like Myers and Briggs and, and Enneagram and tests like that are they're not good science. They're not valid. They're not reliable resources. They're not good tests. Uh, essentially it would be like, you know, having a scale that gives you a different score every time you step on it, as far as the, like measuring your weight. Um, Mm. I mean, they're, they're not good scales, but also they, they do create an over identification with a label. So there's a lot of research, um, at Harvard from Ellen Langer that talks about how, when you have a label, when you've overly assumed a label or an identity, um, you, you then have a fixed mindset and you can't, you have tunnel vision. Labels create what's called selective attention. So like, I'll give you an example. Think about like when you buy a car, you can see the car when you're driving on the road, right? You see other people driving the same car, right? You've had that experience, right? Yep. Yep. But what you don't see is you don't see all of the other cars. Mm. You don't notice those. And that's mindless. You're mindless. You know, you notice what, what you're paying attention to. And so when you have a label, you notice the label. So like what Ellen Langer's done is she studied people <clears> who <throat> identify as depressed as an example. And they think that they're always depressed. But mm. if you actually looked at their behavior, if you looked at the data of their like behavior, there'd be many episodes during a given day when they're actually feeling pretty great. But mm. we don't pay attention to those, just like we don't pay attention to the other cars on the road. Mm. And so first off, the label is not necessarily always true. But when you overly assume a label, your job then becomes to confirm the label. You set goals based on how you currently see yourself rather than setting the goals that you want that would require you to transform yourself. So actually, the, the problem is, is that people think that personality is innate, that it's unchangeable, and that it's something you must discover. And since it's something you must discover, therefore, personality tests or some other way is a great way to figure out who you are. And once you've finally figured out who you are, you can then build your life to tailor towards your personality. It leads you to being very unflexible. Uh, it leads you to being very, uh, first off, mindless, but you don't, you're not willing to try things that don't feel natural, don't feel safe, don't feel easy. Um, usually, all of the greatest learning and transformation are, are during times when it's not necessarily easy. Just as an example, me being a foster parent of three kids, like that was never n- natural. It's still not natural. It's not easy. Um, but it's definitely been transformational. It's changed my preferences. It's changed my priorities. It's changed my views of things. Um, so I'm not the same person as I used to be. And I, I doubt that if I were to ask you, I doubt that you're the exact same person you used to be. Um, but here's what's also really interesting. There's a researcher, there's a lot of research now going on in the realm of what's called your future self. So like there's a TED talk called the psychology of your future self by Daniel Gilbert. He's a Harvard psychologist, but there's a lot of other people studying this concept now and about how, first off, it's really important to realize that your future self is not you. You're not the same person as your future self. They have a different context. They've got different priorities, different perspectives, probably hopefully more wisdom, right? They're, mm. And and it's important for decision-making to think about what your future self would want versus what you would want because they have different preferences than you, you know? Like, mm. um, And so basically, it's actually impossible to make high-quality decisions here and now without a clear future self in mind of who you want to be. But if you're acting towards your future self, then by nature, you're actually not acting in the same way as your former self. Mm. And I think that if you're acting towards a future self, then you're being intentional. You're living on a daily basis towards goals 
which is the opposite of living on autopilot, which is living subconsciously. And so, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the 10,000 hour rule that was kind of popularized by Gladwell. Yep. So what's interesting about that is that it's actually not a rule. Um, you could actually do something for 10,000 hours and not get any better. (laughs) Um, you know, you could just do something over and over and over and not get very good at it. But what, what Gladwell's step was, was he's kind of stole that idea or kind of really made it trendy based on a bunch of research called deliberate practice. Not sure if you've ever heard of that concept, deliberate practice. Mm, mm, But mm. what deliberate practice is is that you have to be, you have to be deliberate. You have to, so basically training and learning that's transformational has to be towards a future self or towards a goal. You can't engage in a meaningful process if you don't have a clear goal. And so the goal shapes the process. Um, And so the future self is really what shapes your actions today, which allows you to become, and if you do that, your personality will change. I'm just going to tell you, you're going to become different. Um, so, 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 so yeah. stuff like that. Cause you said, you said some very interesting things now. Um, so you saying just so for people are listening, you're saying, are you literally saying, I want people to like have no doubt in what you're saying. I'll say it. No okay. doubts. Go ahead. Okay. You saying to people, you can become whoever you want to be. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Are, are yes, you saying I will you, say, I will say it's absolutely not easy. I'm not saying you can make yourself six feet tall. I'm yeah, not saying, no, no. I, we're, right. get, remember, we're talking about personality here. Um, yes, you can become that. If you want to become a great leader, yes. If you want to become conscientious, if you want to com- become extroverted, yes, you can become those things. <laughs> I mean, so what, yes. what, so, so if I want to be, let's say, I want to have the confidence of Elon Musk. I want to have the compassion of Mother Teresa. I, you're saying, I can be that. Yes. That's what I'm hearing. Can. Yes, we can be that. Of course. Yes, of course. So, so folks, you, you probably it. believe that too, but yes, yeah, it's true. Yeah. I'm just asking the question because I want people. Yes. To like it's really, fundamentally true. Really yes. You folks, yes, you you need, but you need to have a clear future self. You okay. actually need to do the job of conceptualizing it yourself. So, so, but here's now the second question. Okay. So let's say I'm someone that, and I'm stuck in pain, trauma, hurt, victimhood, which I want to talk about in a second. I'm just stuck in the, just the, the the mix of my own conditioning, right? And I'm so, like, I don't even know who the hell I am now, really. How am I going to conceptualize a future self based on my wounds, trauma, the fact that I don't even know who the hell I am now to even know what a future self would be? Wouldn't my future self be based on, an, on, a, on, a, on a mistake or the wrong ladder on the wrong wall based on the fact that I don't know who I am now? Can you, like, how do you know that future self is even a, real future self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's important to realize that your future self right now is going to be different than the future self you would have conceived five years ago. Right. It's different than the future self you would have con- you're going to conceive in five years from now. Your future self is very much based on what you're currently exposed to. It's based on your current desires and it's based on your current level of confidence. Um, the more confident you become, the actually the more clear and the more probably bigger and more, you know, your future self will be. Um, but we all have, you know, Basically, what the research says is, and I think this is true, over 90, over 90% of people want to make changes in, them, in their lives. Mm. And Dan Sullivan says, all progress starts by telling the truth, right? I mean, it can be scary to tell the truth. But if you were honest, I think sometimes it takes getting some space. So there's a really good quote. And the quote is that trauma doesn't happen to you. It's what you hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. Um, mm. So it's not what happens to you. It's what you hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. Um, trauma usually is an event that occurs. It's some negative thing that shapes what's called a cognitive commitment or a narrative. You know, you can form a narrative about yourself that you're limited in some way or that you are this way. And then you can become very rigid and black and white in your thinking. And so a part of this is to some degrees, letting go of what's happened. Um, and, and that obviously takes work, journaling, getting help, talking about it, reframing it, 
Um, and we can talk about that if you want, but yep. I think if someone's just honest with themselves and sometimes it takes getting the space, they could, you know, your future self isn't 50 years into the future. It might be next month. It might mm -hmm. be next, it might mm -hmm. be next year. Um, and just saying, what are the things that I truly want? You know, all progress starts by telling the truth, you know? So it's like, if you're caught in an addiction and, and you mm -hmm. see it's viciously killing your life, or if you're, you know, the parent of a kid and you're just not showing up the right way, we all have different roles. You know, you're in, you're in a role right now as a podcaster, but you've got different roles in your life as well. And you're different in all of those roles, but you could define who you want to be in those roles. You know, I've got a wife mm -hmm. and five kids and I'm promising you, I'm not, I'm not the person I yet want to be in those roles. And so mm -hmm. I think the first starting point is just saying, who do you want to be right now? Where are the areas of your life that you definitely want to be different? Um, and then, uh, you know, and just defining that a little bit. So Daniel Gilbert, what he's found in his research, a lot of people don't take the time to imagine their future self because it's a lot easier just to remember the future. And instead of, and so and they don't, you, do, you just don't take the time to literally give yourself the space to conceptualize it, to think about it, to imagine it, and to, to really detail it out as far as what, do I, what does it look like for me to be better in this role, you know? Mm. Um, but once you've conceptualized it, what's really important is, is um, there's a theory called narrative, narrative identity. And it's one of the kind of core ways that our identity is formed. Our identity is shaped by the story we tell about ourselves. Mm. And so the next big step, if you actually have, if you give yourself the honesty of defining what you want, even if it's just next week or next month or in, in a year from now, what things you would like to be show up differently in your life mm. and how you'd like to, and who you'd like to be. The next big step, which takes a bunch of courage for people is to start telling people who that future version of you is mm. rather than just saying, this is who I am. And this is what I've been up to. If you were to be honest and blunt about the changes you actually want to make in your life and the person you would like to be, uh, if you started to tell people, I would say tell everyone who that person is, then it really clarifies your identity. It really also clarifies your environment and your relationships because then people know what you're actually going for. And yes, that might surprise some of them because you might stop, you know, it might be radically different than the expectations they've had. But if you start telling everyone about your goals, you would then start to feel compelled to start living more in that direction. Mm, interesting. It kind of creates an environment of people around you to, to sort yeah. of even hold you accountable almost, right? Uh, yeah. and, and so let's say... Uh, we, talk, we mentioned the word victim, but let's say someone is feeling like they're a victim to the past, like this bad thing's happened. You know, Ben, you don't understand. I'm, you know, I was raped by my, my, my dad. I, I was beaten by my mother. I mean, these things happened. They weren't right. And, and, and they're still like, they hear what you're saying, but, but emotionally, yes, they're still feeling like a victim. And, they're, and, and, and maybe they're saying, okay, I can, I can, I, I understand it's happening for me, but I'm still really mad. I'm freaking mad at my, at my dad and my mom and for what they did or they didn't do and they didn't give me. And I, I, I can't. If they actually said that, that would be a big sign. Usually they wouldn't even go that far. <laughs> so, so, so how, uh, if how you actually just own thinking? those emotions, that's yeah. actually the big first step. You know, and I would even say you could say that to me. You could say that to someone you care about or you could say that in your journal. But by just dumping your thoughts about how you felt, that would honestly be a big first step because that's actually a step that does not often happen. Usually what happens is, is when something bad happens, you actually try to suppress the emotions and you try to ignore or, or evade them through you know, negative coping mechanisms, whether that be addictions or other things. Um, mm -hmm. so I don't know if you've studied Gabor Mate much, he studied, you know, he's like one of the best trauma experts in the world, but what he says is your personality is usually a coping mechanism to your trauma. And mm -hmm. so if you were to actually admit all of these things and express your emotions, that would be a fundamental, huge first step. Um, mm -hmm. like I, 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 uh, I talk about the subconscious a lot in this book and about, um, you know, reframing your subconscious has a lot to do with 
expressing your emotions, you know, mm -hmm. just telling people where you're at. And I think that doing it in your journal is a really good place, but eventually you do have to get to the point and sometimes it does require an empathetic witness where after you've genuinely expressed them, usually actually, honestly, by just doing that, you start to see them differently. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Just by letting them out and, and writing about them, you can then start to think about them clearly. And you, and you can admit, one thing that's really important to realize is that your former self, whoever that person was that went through that negative experience is not who you are today. Um, mm -hmm. But the problem without writing about it and without talking about it is, is that you're actually still seeing it from the lens of the initial re reaction. So what happens is, is you have an event and there's an initial reaction that's called the primary emotion. So if someone cuts you off on the road, you might be scared or upset, but then the secondary emotions are basically what you do about it. You know, eventually you say, I'm, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. I'm going to let that go. Or he probably was in a rush. So you choose what you do with it. The problem with trauma is, is that secondary emotion usually never occurs. And so this is where going back and writing about it or even talking about it allows you then to have that opportunity where you can say, yes, it was hell. Yes, you're angry. Um, and it was not fair, et cetera. But what do you want to do about it now? Or how do you, or, or, you know, or what information do you need? You know, I'll give an example. Yeah. Myself. One of the things that I did to further contextualize my experience, because one thing that's really important to understand is that memory is fluid. Memory is not just a mm -hmm. filing cabinet. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a quote from Stephen Covey. He says, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. We see the world from our own perspective, right? The same is true of the past. The, we don't see the past as it is. We see the past as we are. Um, mm -hmm. And the past is really actually more about context and meaning <clears throat> than it is about content. And so I'll, I'll quickly explain this, but then I'll show you that you can actually very much change the meaning of your memories. Um, so context matters more than content. I'll give an example. In a recent email that I sent to people, I actually used the word viral. I said, you know, a viral, an article went viral, right? And a bunch of people emailed me back and they said, Ben, will you please not use that word? <laughs> COVID-19, right? Right, right. right? And, yeah. I, and I was like, totally respectable. I'm like, that's fine. I won't use that word right now. But if I had used that word five weeks ago, it wouldn't have mattered, right? Yeah, people would have loved it, probably, you know? Yeah, and so that it. just shows that context matters more than content. In fact, context shapes the meaning of content. So it's not the word viral, it's the context around it that matters. Um, one other quick story, um, and this, is, this matters because right now, you need to contextualize your, your, your experiences, right? It, it, just as an example, me as an 11-year-old, as an 11-year-old who my parents got divorced, my father became a drug addict. I didn't understand the bigger context. I didn't know what was going on. I was just... I was, from my perspective, a victim of what was going on. I couldn't see the experience from the 11-year-old version. As a 32-year-old person now, looking back, um, understanding the situation better, understanding my parents better, talking to my parents, uh, and understanding what led them to those decisions, I now can see things that my 11-year-old self couldn't see, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I can then look at the... So really where you want the past to be is you want the past to be information, which you can mm -hmm. use. You don't want it to be emotion that's still bottled up. If it's still emotion rather than information, mm -hmm. then it's, it's essentially driving you. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll give one more quick example because this is just a, a funny story, but my mother-in-law, and this was probably a month ago, she was working out in a, a fitness place called Curves. I don't know if you've ever heard of Curves. I have, yeah. Yeah, so it's like never been. <laughs> never been? Oh, dang, dude. <laughs> you got big muscles though, bro. <laughs> Ooh, dude, I would love to work out with you sometimes, bro. Um, anyway, she was working out in Curves and there was this very big honestly, obese woman exercising. Uh, and she was wearing very tightly fitted, lots of skin showing workout clothes. And my, my mother-in-law could tell that there was kind of, you know, it was a little awkward for some of the people just because you don't see that every single day. 
Well, they ended up working out next to each other. And, you know, my mother-in-law just started talking to her, just getting to know this woman because they were just working out on this like machines right next to each other. And she found out into the conversation that over the last probably six or so months, this woman's lost over a hundred pounds. Right. Wow. Wow. And so what happened for my mother with that information was, is her perspective changed, right? Like Mm -hmm. she went from maybe being a little critical to immediately being inspired and nothing changed about the woman. Right. Mm -hmm. The only thing that changed was my mother's perspective of the situation. Context changed, not content. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's just important to realize that the past is a meaning. It's a story. It's a, it's a Mm -hmm. view. Um, and it's just one view. You know, we see this in history. If you read history books about World War II from the perspective of North America or from, you know, other countries, Germany or Japan, you'd get totally different perspectives. Mm. And what's interesting is when you read history books, um, the history changes over time. Like you can read mm. about events, the same event, and like over periods of time, the telling of that event changes. Mm. And so it's just important to realize that whatever did happen to you is a perspective. It's a meaning. It's a view. Uh, mm. And ultimately you have to choose if you're going to continue to see it from the same perspective you saw it when it happened. And if you're going to still demand that your identity is the same way it once was. And if, mm. and if, if, if that's the case, if you must see it that way, then you're focused on the content and you're unwilling to change the context. And therefore mm. you're unwilling to change the meaning of the event. You're unwilling to change what it means for you. You said unwilling. I mean, is it, is it always that in your experience, people unwilling? Because I sometimes hear people say, I want to change. I want to change. I want to change. But, but, but I, I, I'm stuck. Is, is, it, is, it, is it really always people that are unwilling or is it something else? Or have you, find, have you primarily you found it's just... I mean, I, I think that in a lot of cases it is. I mean, they may be blind to the idea that it is contextual and that they're, they're, they're forcing a, a, just one view. I mean, for them, it's real right? Mm-hmm. That's how it was. That's how it feels. Mm-hmm. And so, but yeah, I mean, like, like for instance, you know, I've heard, I have a friend who, keep, you know, she keeps saying, I know my dad did the best he could. I know he did the best he could. And, and, and I'm constantly getting upset when, when I speak to him, you know, but I, I know, he, I know he did the best he could like, like intellectually she knows it, but emotionally, well, she, I'm wondering, has she talked to him about this? Okay, that's what I was going to ask next. Like, is it necessary that people speak to him? Because what she says yeah, is... Yeah, of course well, it well, is. But Ben, what she, what, what she says is, for instance, it wouldn't help because he just, he's, not, he's not someone you can speak to about these things. He's just, he's not someone who can have a conversation. Here's so, what's crazy about this. Here's what's yeah. crazy about this. So I've spent a lot of time studying addiction. Mm. And... When people, like when, let's just say you, you have a family member who's an addict, right? Like I can speak for myself. Like it's not my dad anymore, but I have a brother who's very much struggling with an addiction. And, and what's interesting is, is what families usually do in these situations is they think they get a lot of, they try to get a lot of therapy and a lot of support for the addict, right? Mm-hmm. But what they don't realize is that they're actually the ones who need therapy mm-hmm. because they're not doing this. They're, they're actually creating a lot of the problem. Um, mm. how they're dealing with and how they're seeing the person is actually just as detrimental to the situation. Mm. And so when I'm thinking about your friend, her view of her father is very much a fixed mindset. She does not see that he has the shot to change. She doesn't think that he can. And so, you know, she's, she's very rigid emotionally in how she sees her father and how she's interacting with him. You know, mm. I would, if I, you know, if, if we watched her interactions with her father, it's probably not very charitable. You know what I mean? It's probably not very, there's probably not a lot of faith, hope, and charity, if you know what I'm saying. Like, um, and so how she 
is talking to him and how she's viewing him is very much creating the interaction. You know, I mean, mm. it may need to be in a safe environment, but my guess would be it would take a lot of courage for her to open up and talk to her dad. It would mm. take a huge amount of courage. I mean, they always say courage is the doorway. And, mm. and um, you know, one of the things that also I would, I would recommend to this girl, yes, she's upset. Yes, she's mad at what he did. Um, but does she know why he did it? You know, I, for example, me, myself, one of the things that I've recently done is I've gone back and I've talked to my dad about what led you to being a drug addict. What led to those decisions? How did it feel? What was it like? Uh, you know, and he opened up immensely about all of the, even things from his childhood that I had no clue about. Um, and, you know, I, I then had a lot more compassion and empathy and understanding, not necessarily that it justified his behavior, nor did it, you know, but it, and it fundamentally impacted me. But because I was able to understand his context and understand where he was coming from, I had a lot more empathy and understanding and I could then, even though it's not something yeah. that I hope I would, I would have done I can understand why he was acting that way. Beautiful. Um, now, and I could you, have compassion towards him. You triggered something because I think there might be some people uh, dealing with this in terms of like, okay, hear what you're saying. How does that relate to, let's say someone who's dealing with a parent or a friend or, or someone, right? Who let's say they have mental illness let's say the parent has mental illness and, and, and they try to speak to them. Because I know there's people that are going to be in this situation. Man. They, they try to speak to them and the reaction is still the same. They're like, I am open. I'm trying to be charitable. I'm trying to, I'm trying to like be yes, available. Yes, 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 yes. But, but, but they're a little off, you know. They're, they're, maybe there is an actual mental illness or maybe there's just, it's a psycho, you know, there's trauma. Mental trauma. illness is a real thing, so yeah. So how to deal with that part of things? Yeah, I mean, if that's guide a reality. Us. Yeah, yeah if, you're, if you're dealing with someone who's got an extreme mental illness, um, obviously you might not be able to have that coherent conversation that you want to have, right? right? You still need to have it. Um, it might not need to be with them necessarily if that's the case. I mean, I, I still think that your relationship with them um, mm -hmm. may be useful. So in some situations, it's just so bad that you really, you can't do it. You know, if someone's just heavily abusive or terrible or, I mean, there's situations obviously where the best thing you could honestly do is just distance yourself from that person. And so right. I'm, right. I, I know that that's true. <laughs> um, right. And if that's the case, you know, I think that those people still deserve empathy and understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, they still even though, yeah, they might have hurt you um, and you might not be able to have a relationship with them, you still need to resolve your relationship with them because even though you might not, you know, relationships are, are what's between you and that person. And so how you feel towards a person is your relationship towards them, your view of them, how you, how you speak of them, how you think of them. You know, like I, I don't think of my, I think I genuinely think of my dad as a hero now. Like I, I feel that way about my father and I think he is. He's overcome a lot. Uh, and I know that he's a good human being, even though he's got his own challenges. And right. so I think, you know, a lot of what emotion is and a lot of what memory is and a lot of what meaning is, is, is how you feel about something. And so, yes, someone might have done something absolutely horrible to you. Um, but if you can't have any compassion towards them or from where they're coming from, like, I think that you, you, the, a lot of these things are choices you have to make. And it's not, I'm not saying it's easy. A lot of it may require a lot of help or a lot of learning and a lot of growth on your own part. But, but I mean, a good exercise is this, like, how would it, you know, you, you could use other people as an example, if you, if you're not clear on your own stuff right now, but like, how would someone else view this person? Oh, you know what I mean? Like, oh. how would, 
you know, you could use someone you really admire, like how would Gandhi view my father, you know, or how would, how would God view my, you know, or, or how would my future self handle this situation? You know, how would a more flexible person view this? Because um, other people are not going to see the situation the same way you are. They're not going to see your dad the same way. They might have totally different perspectives. Um, and I think it's really important to get other perspectives because your current perspective is incredibly limited. Mm. Um, you know, your current perspective is not objective fact. Your current perspective, mm. especially if it's still rooted in trauma, is based on kind of the emotions and the, and the negativity of how it occurred. Mm. And so you definitely have a biased perspective. I'm not saying it's not important. But it's, it's very helpful to get outside perspectives and, and, to, and to adjust your views with better information. Yeah. If, you know? And I think that we need to do that in all cases. I mean, if you're wanting to learn and grow and develop, you need to adjust your views because um, your current views are keeping you where you're currently mm. at. Mm. And so being beautiful. willing to get new information. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, I want to just shift gears a little bit. This is fascinating, Ben. Um, you wrote a book, Willpower Doesn't Work. Uh, I think, you know, we're going through some, some, some intense times right now where a lot of people are feeling a lot, challenged a lot, uh, having to dig deep inside and uh, make some changes within themselves, within their lives and decisions in terms of work, career, family, um, willpower. We're talking about personality, not being permanent, creating change. So why does willpower not work? Um, and if not willpower, then what? How, how do we, you're talking about, make, is, it, is it just a decision? Like, because often we're so used to using willpower to drive ourselves, to be successful, to, to take actions. And so why does willpower not work when I think a lot of our culture reinforces just will yourself through it? And so what's, what's, what the hell is the alternative? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me start with just an example to see how you feel about this. Let's just give my three foster kids an example. You know, let's just, they're my kids now, but let's, let's reverse it. They're still living in their parents' trailer out in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina. Their parents aren't supportive. Their parents mm. are high on drugs. They're, put, they're sitting in front of a TV all day. What level of willpower in those kids in that situation would allow them to create a successful life? I mean, yeah, maybe they could figure it out, but is it willpower that's ultimately going to get them there? Um, probably not. Honestly, like... Mm. In that situation, they have very limited resources, very limited help. They don't even know what a successful life looks like. This is what normal is to them. And so it's really important to realize that the idea that you can just will your way to wherever you want to go is ridiculous. I mean, could people 300 years ago will themselves to get on the internet? There was no internet. They couldn't have had this conversation with all the willpower in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I think what we've done in our Western culture is we're really individualistic. We very much focus on ourselves. We, you know, we think of, we talk about habits, character, grit, um, from a, from an addiction standpoint, what, what kind of, I, I really like this model, but they say that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Hmm. You know, you can't overcome an addiction through grit and willpower. Um, you actually end up having to s surrender often to a higher power, but also you have to surrender to other people and you have to admit you're wrong and then you need to get help. You need to, you know, this is why in Alcoholics Anonymous, you've got like peers and a support group is because if you're trying to overcome an addiction through willpower, you're going to fail over and over and over. It's like one of the most unreliable methods for change. 
I think anyone who's tried to have a diet as an example with willpower has failed. Anyone who's tried to do, I mean, yes, you can, you can push yourself pretty far, but let me explain something that I think is really helpful when it comes to understanding what willpower is. So there's a, have you ever heard of the concept called decision fatigue? Sure. I've heard so it, decision, yeah. so decision fatigue, what it actually means is that the more decisions you're required to make, the less quality they become over time. Right. right and so at the right. end of the day, usually we, we can be prone to making stupid decisions, binge on food, Netflix and stuff like that. Not that those are dumb decisions, but what they are is they're short sighted decisions because with low willpower, you're seeking high dopamine. You're just seeking, mm-hmm. you know, and so you're not thinking long-term. And so you're making fat, you know, basically short-term decision-making. Mm. So here's why this is important. It, decision fatigue in a lot of ways is the idea that you, you haven't made a decision yet. You're not sure what you want to do, and so you have to weigh back and forth. So as an example, I'll, I'll start with giving a quote. This is a mm-hmm. quote from, from the Harvard um, business professor. His name's Clayton Christensen. But he said that 100% commitment is easier than 98% commitment. <laughs> And, and the reason why 98% commitment is so tough is because when you're only 98% committed to something, then it means that you're not really, you haven't actually made a decision. And if you haven't made a decision, let's just say to a diet, let's just say you're 98% committed to going sugar-free, just as one example. Huh. What that means is that in every future situation you're in, you have to make a new decision, right? right? right. And when you're in a new decision, in a new situation, you have to go through decision fatigue. You have to weigh back and forth in your mind. Is this one of those situations when I'm going to eat the dessert? And usually in those situations, the environment wins or the situation Mm. wins. It wins more than you think. Mm. And when it wins more than you think, not only is your identity unclear and your confidence begins to plummet, but, but you have to keep making decisions. So there's a quote from Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan said, once I made a decision, I never thought about it again. Mm. And Mm. so decision fatigue means you're still thinking about it. And if you're still thinking about it, you're, you're weighing things down the situation's winning. When you're 100% committed, then when you step into a new situation, the decision was already made. So you don't even have to think about it, right? Mm. It's like, no, I don't do that. Mm. Um, that makes things a lot easier. And so decision is actually the opposite of decision fatigue. And, and, when, and there's a book called The Paradox of Choice where it talks about how right now we live in a world of overloaded choice, right? And so you're going to be destroyed with decision fatigue in this environment, which, you know, is which is why people have low dopamine, you know, low willpower and they're addicted to their cell phones and so many mm-hmm. other things. And so what you need to do when it comes to paradox of choice is you have to remove options. You know, and that's yeah. really what decision is. Decision yeah. is the removal of options. Mm-hmm. And so you, that's really what making decisions is. And it's the opposite of decision fatigue. Making decisions eliminates the need for willpower. You remove yes. options that are destroying you. You remove mm-hmm. things that you just know you ultimately don't want and you then commit forward to who you want to be. It's, it's the opposite of willpower, but it's so, so it's two things. It's, it's, it's design and it's decision, you know, so you have to make a decision, but then you have to design around that decision. Mm. You know, you have to design an environment and a situation so that you can be that person organically. I think it's so true what you're saying. Cause, cause for me, uh, people often, I mean, I'm one, I'm very, one of the things is I'm very consistent in how I live my life. And, uh, especially when it comes to things like exercise and my health optimization and like, I literally work out seven days a week, whether I'm on a plane, you know, whether I'm flying, whether I have to wake up, I have to get a catch a flight at 5am, I wake up at 2am. And what I've done is I've made a choice to not have it be a choice. So I don't have a choice about it. It's just, it's just it what, is who you are. It just is what happens whether I'm teaching and I'm sleeping three hours a night, I wake up at three. It's just, I don't even have to think about it. And it's such a freedom. I think it's so true. One of the things I've heard you talk about, you talked about design. You talked a bit about environment. 
Um, I know you talk about that in your book. I'd like for you to talk a bit about that here in terms of um, this idea that we adapt to our environments. And so how, can you talk a bit more about how that happens and a bit more about how people listening in can, um, what are the keys to, to sort of setting up an environment, uh, things that you've learned that would maybe help them shift, help them optimize, help them be their best selves? Like what are some of the design keys that you found? Yeah, there's lots. There's lots of good ones. Um, A really important concept is that your input shapes your outlook. So inputs, you know, so you have to first be aware of the inputs coming in. That could be information. It could be food. It could be people. It could be experiences. But it's Mm. important to know that the things coming in are the things that are shaping you. So like, Mm. you know, so there's, there's a few big concepts that initially come to mind. One would be, what I call strategic ignorance. You know, this goes to the idea of, of um, paradox of choice. There's certain things that you just don't need to be aware of. Um, it's honestly a distraction to your purpose. Um, it could be the media. It could be certain people. It could be certain opinions. It could be certain celebrities. There's certain things that you just need to be ignorant of so that they need to be removed from your environment so that they don't come inside and distract huh. you. So hmm. the other one is strategic remembering. And this is about having a clear future self and designing an environment that reinforces that future self. So, you know, like it's easy through the busyness of the day to to forget your purpose, right? And so you want an environment that has plenty of triggers or reminders that remind you of who you're striving to be. This, you know, Mm. honestly, this kind of brings up the idea of vision board, but there's, there's other plenty of other approaches. You know, you could have things on your cell phone that tell you to like text your wife. I mean, it's just literally creating reminders of who you're striving to be so that you can be that person, you know, putting mm. up good art that just inspires, you know, actually one of the things I share in the book, James Whistler was um, a famous artist. You know, he was a painter, I think a couple hundred years, a hundred or two years ago. Mm. But what he did was he actually, he was very famous and he, he painted a picture of some roses, which for him was like his most inspired painting and everyone wanted to buy it. And he just decided not to sell it because he wanted to keep it right on his desk. So that during the days when he was having down days, he would look at that rose and he would remember what was possible. So that was just kind of a reminder. It was a trigger that would get him out of his slumps. Um, and so you want to you have an environment around you that allows you to remember who you're striving to be. That, that makes life a lot easier than having an environment that's keeping you the person you once were. Um, the last one I will share is a concept called forcing functions. This is a really kind of fun, interesting idea. So a forcing function is the idea that you know, I'll give one, you know, an easy example, Parkinson's law, like work fills the space that it requires. So if you have a short timeline, you're probably going to have work really hard. You know what I mean? Like if you, so that's a forcing function. It's, it's a situational factor that forces you to show up a certain way and produce a mm-hmm. result. So if you have, if someone, you know, if you have an assignment, for example, like if your boss gives you a project and they're like, if they told you it was due in a month, it would take a month. If they told you it was due in a week, it would take a week. Um, right, so you right, can right. implement forcing functions into your life to get yourself moving. Um, one example could be, for example, like if you want to run a marathon, just literally sign up for the race. You know what I mean? Maybe like if you financially invest in something, you'll start, you know, so these are ways that you can engineer situations. You know, there's, there's an entrepreneur who his name's Dan Martell and he's actually written about forcing functions. One of the things that he did was he would, if he wanted to be focused at work, he would go to the like library, just an example. And he would leave his power cable at home and, you know, for his computer. And he knew that his computer would die in two hours. And so like, he knew that he would drive to the airport and he'd have, I mean, sorry to the library. And because he didn't take his power cable, he knew he only had two hours of work. Right. So like that's a forcing function. Uh, He even same guy told his wife that he would pick up his kids from school every day as a forcing function so that he had to stop working at 3 PM. Like this is literally just about designing situations um, 
the yeah. structure, structure of one, structuring one's life. Yeah. And creating some discipline and structuring one's life, so to speak. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, beautiful. Strategic ignorance, which I love. Strategic remembering, forcing functions. I noticed you didn't say deadline. Is there a reason for that? It's, or, or it's just a different term you're choosing? Oh, to? well, deadline. There's a lot of different styles of forcing functions. One of them is a deadline. One of them is You a know, deadline. I'll say, for example, uh, I think you know who Dan Sullivan is, right? Yep. So he and I have a book coming out in October <laughs> called Who Not How. And um, I had to write that book so much faster than I've written any book before <laughs> because there was such an extreme deadline and because there were other people involved. It's like there were, because it was a collaboration, there was more people involved than just me. Right. And so I had to operate according to other people's timelines, not just my own. If it was just me, I would have pushed the pub date back. But this is why uh, collaborations and environments can be a huge forcing nice. function. But there was such a crazy deadline on that book. I wrote this book and it actually turned out way better than I thought it would. I, and I got sick doing it because I almost killed myself. Um, <laughs> not literally, but. How, how long did it take? Uh, start to finish, you know, and it's a really good book, probably two months. And it like, honestly. Two months, wow. Yeah, that you is, know, that honestly, is, per, like, like when, sure. in this book right here, this book took me a year and a half. And like, you know, like this book's a lot better than person. I mean, willpower doesn't work. Willpower doesn't work probably took me a year or a little less. Um, but who not how, it turned out so much better than I thought, but I had to do it because not only was, was there other people involved, but mm. there was such an extreme timeline and I, mm. and I was committed. I wanted, I wanted to, I didn't want to push the public back. I mean, it was possible. I could have just thrown it off and said, you know, we're going to push it off, but there were relational obligations. And also I wanted it. I, I wanted yeah. both of these books, to be honest with you, to come out the yeah. same year. I want this year to be a big year. And so I'm like, I'm just going to kill myself, but I wouldn't have done that if there wasn't a timeline. Beautiful. Like, you know what I mean? And so it really, it, it, so this is the idea that your behavior, you know, there's a quote from William Durant. He says the ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. You know, when I became a parent of three kids out of nowhere, all of a sudden my situation demanded a different version of me and I yeah. adapted to that situation. So your yeah. situation demands different things. So it's almost like, you know, I'm, I'm hearing by, by either biting off more than you're currently capable of putting yourself in I don't want to say extreme situations, but in challenging situations that stretch you outside of your comfort zone that will force you to, you know, tap into things. Yeah. It can be a really good, a good practice. I think many times we just get in a little comfort zone and we do what's comfortable or we wait till we, we, we kind of think there's a guarantee and it's safe. Then we try and stretch and then there's no growth in that. So I think if we really want to be the, the great versions of ourselves, the Elon Musk, Mother Teresa's, what have you, which you're saying we can all Think about be. what Elon does. Elon puts himself in situations, then he has to figure it out, right? He's, yeah. He makes these big promises and he makes these big visions way before he's ever that person. But then he has to evolve into that person. And there's an enormous amount of pressure. You know, it's that idea that pressure. pressure can either bust a pipe or make a diamond, yeah, right? And so he's always creating situations that then he has to grow into. Right. You know, that's called confidence. You throw yourself yeah. in a situation. It's called courage as well. Yeah. But you throw yourself in a situation and then you know that the situation is going to require you to change as a person. I mean, that's exactly. what happened when we became parents and it's, it's what happens when you create collaborations or when you, and so that's the idea is you put yourself in a situation where you have no other choice. And if you fail, it's okay, but at least you gave it a shot. And, yes. you know, and that's the only way you'll ever know if you could have done it. I, I want to say in, in a second, I want to get, I have a question about the parent thing. Cause I'm really fascinated about what th this, this story real quick. Before we go there, one final kind of tweak or insight I'd like you to give on, creating change, you touched on the spiritual component. Maybe there's a spiritual component, you know, on there's your, a lot of things uh, that are on, spiritual. Your, on, on your mission, you know, as a young man, 
your connection to God. I'm not sure how much you write about that in Personality is Permanent, but what is the spiritual, you know, dimension of transformation to, to move through things, to change? You know, how much is that? We're talking about environment and, you know, things out here, but what about the connection to, to the divine, to God, the, whatever people connect to as God, you know, but how much does that impact our ability to change who we are, how, and why? I think it makes a big difference. I think, I think you can, you can obviously make changes in yourself without God. (laughs) Um, But I think, I think that having faith in God is a, is a huge, you could call it an unfair advantage, but it's not because everyone can have access to it. But if you have a faith and a belief in God, and if you, you, and if you're in a kind of a collaborative relationship with God, where like, for example, you're asking for help, just as an example, like I myself, I've prayed many times that my blog post would be successful and that I would learn how to do it in a successful way, you know, and, and, mm. and, I, and I, I pray my way through writing these dang books and even through doing these interviews. And so to me, it's, 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 it, 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 infor- it, 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 it enables, you know, they call grace the enabling power. And so it, it just, it, it, it provides additional resources beyond what I could do myself. So yeah, you mm. can make big change. I mean, I could start changing how I dress. I can do all sorts of changes without asking God for help. But I think, you know, why wouldn't you also seek divine intervention or divine help in what you're trying to accomplish? Like, you know, uh, and obviously sometimes God can redirect the course, but I also am a believer that God wants us to make our own choices and often he'll just support the things that we're trying to do and support us, you know? And so, you know, often sometimes if it's the wrong thing, which I think is less often than is what most people think. I think often he just wants to support us in what we're striving for. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you receive according to your desires kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's, a, it's essential. I mean, to me, you know, having faith in God not only gives it meaning because, you know, without it, it, you know, you can kind of have a nihilistic purpose of life. You know, if there is no purpose to life, what's the goal anyways? You know, for me, faith in God gives a lot of meaning and purpose, even to things like the coronavirus. I mean, it gives, it gives meaning to um, challenges, to trials. It gives meaning to growth. It gives meaning to goals. And so to me, it's, it's essential. And to me, it's very powerful. I mean, there's a lot of research on it, to be honest with you, that prayer can be a powerful way of becoming more resilient or more grateful or to learn. Uh, Research aside, I just, I've experienced it abundantly. I mean, I, I love feeling like God's close to me and helping me and supporting me. And I love watching, you know, honestly, you know, in the depths of despair sitting there and I've got this crazy deadline, you know, as far as like, how am I going to turn this book into something? I sit and pray and ask for a miracle. And then all Mm. of a sudden I can do it, you know? And so it's like, I think it's amazing personally. And I I enjoy uh, having a a faith in God and a relationship to God. And I, and it doesn't take away from my views of science or of business or anything to me. They're not, you know, they're Mm. not mutually exclusive. Like to me, I can study, I I believe truth is wherever you find it. Mm. And so truth is, you know, in spirituality and religion and science and business. And and to me, it's about finding truth and using it. But God, God's a big part of all this for me. I would, you know, I'd love to see you write, you you know, your next book, man, around, around the connection to God and miracles. It, It would be fascinating. It'd be really fascinating to see how you would just dissect that in a really powerful way. I'll tell you who my future self is. All right. In two or three years from now, I believe that this book will have sold millions of copies. I'm just going to tell you. I think it's a very important book, but also I've prayed for it and, I, and I'm going to make it happen. Mm. But in two or three years from now, I'm going to make a big shift. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm going to step away from a lot of this entrepreneurial business. and I'm going to spend way more of my time doing more of what you're describing, more of that, you know, spiritual, religious even stuff. Because to me, that's very important. And to me, that's, that's the next step for me. That's kind of where I want to be spending my time. Mm. Um, 
I'm very happy with where I'm at right now. And I'm going to continue writing books like this, but mm-hmm. I, I will, I'll, I'll write a book. I'm not sure. I, I love the idea of the miracles book, but I, I, I feel it. I, I will, I will write. I mean, you're going to see a lot more writing for me in the future in those directions. I can feel it now. I've been talking to you. Listen, you went from zero to five kids, bro, in a year. This is... By the way, my wife's pregnant right now. Again. (laughs) 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 So, so, you know, you went from zero to five kids in a year. I mean, I imagine going from zero to one kid. Well, zero, like in a year, not even 10, like number one. How was that? Like, and, and number two, how did you handle that? And number three, how did you and your wife maintain a sane, I'm assuming you did, a sane relationship together? And what was the key for you and her uh, j- j- just thriving together, not like killing each other? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kind of uh, one thing I will say, and this goes back to adapting to environments, I believe that the sheer difficulty of it what it feels like on the emotional side of things when you're actually like experiencing it is probably not that dramatically different going from, let's just say zero to one to zero to three. Like, you know, my, it's so overwhelming and so different that, that I would say you're going to adapt either way and you're going to be overwhelmed either way. Um, And so adapting to five may, you know, may not be that as weird as it sounds may not be that much more extreme than adapting to one. That's my perspective. I, um, that's my perspective. A lot of people would probably disagree, but, um, I, I find that you're going to adapt either way and you're going to be overwhelmed either way. And eventually it's going to become your new norm either way because right. subconsciously yeah. you're going to just evolve into it. Um, but how we did it first off, it's important to know that we made these decisions intentionally. Uh, me and my wife, we have a shared vision, shared goals, shared values. Like this is meaningful to both of us. It was actually her desire to become a foster parent, not mine. Um, but because we were on the same page, um, you know, I was totally flexible to that. Just like she's flexible to me. Um, mm. You know, I think in transformational relationships, you, you grow through each other. You know, um, transactional ones, you're probably not willing to do certain things. Um, I will say for the first year, because we had the foster kids for about three years, to be honest with you, but we weren't mm. sure if the adoption was going <clears> to <throat> occur. And then all of a sudden, you know, we spent three years in court. Wow. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden the laws changed in the, in the laws in the state of South Carolina and we were able to adopt these kids. And then my wife got pregnant. So one thing I have to say, we're twins. We're twins. Yeah. 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 So it was a month after we adopted our kids that, you know, we got pregnant with twins. Um, but I will say that the first year that these kids were our foster kids, I was, it was tough for me, man. I, 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 you know, it's that idea that you, your current self has preferences and my, my, myself back then didn't want to be home man. I just wanted to go back to school. I was in my PhD program and I didn't want to be home. I didn't want to come home and see the house all messy. I didn't want to see them throwing their tantrums. I mean, it was hard. Um, But I I valued and wanted to become a good parent. I mean, that was my future self. That was the person I aspired to be. And so I I began to invest myself in them and began to, to, to spend time with them and, you know, take them on daddy dates and stuff. And, and, uh, and honestly, a lot of prayers, you know, a lot of, you know, speaking of miracles uh, and also a lot of external support. I will give my wife a ton of credit. She's extremely stable. Like I wouldn't, we, I couldn't have had five kids in such a short span with just everyone. You know, this is again, why environment and certain relationships matter. Like she yeah. wanted to do it. She's incredibly powerful, like as a person, but she also has a lot of support too. I mean, she's got an amazing family and she comes yeah. from a, a much more stable background than me. <clears> so <throat> um, just, just to put it simply, we got a lot of support externally mm. from from family my wife's powerful we both wanted it and we were both willing to change and become mm. different people and we had to 
you know, when you all of a sudden go from zero to three and these kids are like throwing chairs at the wall and like screaming and yelling and having emotional problems because of where they came from, you have to change. You know, you have to become patient. You've got to put some of your old priorities and goals down and you gotta, you've got you've to become different because for a long time you create more problems than you solve. You know, if you're getting angry and yelling and if you're just like, or if you're just like, and so, yeah, you got to sit down and get help. You know, we've done therapy, um, a lot of prayer, but also you just got to, you got to let certain things go and you got to change and you got to, you got to learn to love these dang kids, you know, and we did learn to love them. I mean, I, I love these kids, you know, one of the things that we had to do, honestly, kind of going back to the idea of commitment, you know, a hundred percent is a lot easier than 98%. One of the things that we decided when we first started from the onset was, um, you know, these kids have been neglected their entire life. You know, like in every situation they've been, they've never been treated with just genuine love. And so we just thought maybe we're never going to be able to adopt these kids, but while they're in our house, we want them to feel what it feels like to have someone just fully invested in them. Wow. You know, and obviously yeah, we weren't able to execute that 24 seven, but that was our intention. Wow. And so like, we were like, you know, a lot of people say they yeah. don't want to do something like foster care because it could be heartbreaking if you lose the kid that's very much focused on your own emotions right yeah. we were like we're willing to go through our own heartbreak we're willing to like invest everything in these kids and see them as our own even if that means that they have to get taken away and we have to have our hearts shattered because mm. we at least want them to feel at least one time in their life what it felt like mm. to have that form of stability so we went for that you know and and that really made a big difference that's beautiful. In, in that time I, I love the reframe and the shift of focus that you made I think I think it has really- to when you're really shifting the focus and really coming from love, it opens up. I think it opens up grace, man. Uh, in terms of you and your wife, though, now you got, you got it's just you and her. Well, it's just you and her. Then it's you and three. Then it's you and five. And now it's six to come. Like, how do you? Plus, not like you're just staying at home. You're writing, running a business. How, how do you and her? What's the secret? The key's been to you and her staying connected, you know, keeping the, the spark of the connection, liking each other, not, not, you know, killing each other. Like what's the relationship keys so people can kind of learn from, yeah. from, from, from your experiences. I think it's easy to get into a rhythm and a routine where you're just going through the motions, you know, and in roles you can, you can, uh, you know, you go into who you are in one role. Like they say that your role predicts your personality. And so like, it's easy to be in a role and just to go through just the motions, you know, like when you go home, it's like, okay, this is who I am now. I'm going to go sit on the couch. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think that just as creative and kind of intentional as you are for myself, as I am with my business, mm-hmm. you know, as far as thinking about my future self, you really have to be just as intentional and thoughtful about your relationships. Um, so like, you know, as an example today, I, I texted my wife cause I was journaling and just thinking this morning, like I really need to be even more engaged right now with my wife because of coronavirus. Like she's got, five kids home a lot more than she used to. So she needs additional support more than typical. Um, and so like, I, you know, you have to think about it. You have to like, you have to actually think about and be thoughtful towards the other person. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, just communicating and stuff like that. I mean, we, there's, I wouldn't say there's any crazy secret. We, we do have like our lives haven't been actually changed that much because of coronavirus. Cause we've always, we've had pretty good st- stable, like routines and stuff. Like our kids, our kids like know what time they're going to bed. We've got like good, like, you know, reading routines and going to bed, we have dinner together. So like their lives aren't even that different because we've got a lot of good structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife are, and I are always in good communication and, and we're just right. like, we're on each other's teams. Like, you know, like she's on my team cause I'm like freaking doing these podcasts and preparing for a launch and like 
you know, mm-hmm. I'm on her team as far as like, you know, she, she wanted to have all these dang kids and I'm cool with that, you know? And so we just, we just, you know, we have a shared vision. You know, one of the nice. things I actually talk about in the book is that you shouldn't marry for personality <laughs> to be fully honest with you, because uh, no matter how exciting a person is in the beginning, the novelty always wears off, right? Like the things you loved in the beginning of a relationship often become the things that bug you most. Mm-hmm. And so it's far more profound to be married to someone who you have shared vision with because then it doesn't really matter if you've got the ups and the downs, like you will transform yourselves through the vision. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so we, we, we support each other and yeah, it's not, it's not always like freaking cherries, you know, but, <laughs> but we did go actually right before coronavirus, we did go up to Chicago and we, we went to one of our, you know, this restaurant that I'd always been wanting to go to. I mean, we, we take time to be together and to connect and, and uh, even just on a nightly basis, you know, like doing like, whether it be like scripture study together or just honestly, like just reading mm. good books together, just like, just having good moments where we're just laughing at the little girls running around, just, just creating good little moments on a daily basis really makes a big difference, man. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Listen, Ben, uh, it's been a, a, a lot. I think we covered a lot of ground, brother. I really <sighs> appreciate your generosity. And I, mean, I feel like we could talk for hours. I definitely at some point, you know, want to have you back and we'll wrap again. Uh, listen, uh, kind of final question or two here, which is uh, if you were to think about your whole life, your experiences, everything you've been through, fatherhood, being a husband, author, writer, doctor, et cetera, et cetera, um, ups and downs. If there were three, if you were just to distill, and you shared a lot, if you were to distill your three most valuable life lessons that you feel you've learned up until now, uh, that if you could only share these three, let's say, with your kids and their kids that you feel these three ideas would evolve the next generation the most, in like a nutshell, what would the three keys be? The hardy keys. <laughs> I don't know if I'm able to answer that. In a, I'll, I'll answer it shortly just yeah, the time. Yeah, but yeah. the answer that Benjamin Hardy today would give you would be different than the answer that Benjamin Hardy three or four years ago would give you. You know, mm-hmm. and the answer that future Benjamin Hardy is going to give you is going to be different as well. I, I think that, you know, as we've discussed, having a relationship with God is, is really big. You know, that's something that I mm-hmm. share with our kids. And we're really big on that. Like, I, I think that it's very important. And I think it's very helpful. And it, 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 it makes everything else handleable but also uh just um, you know it really gives meaning and, and, it, and it allows for a lot of great things to happen so you know obviously for my kids i'm just thinking about to my kids now but you know hopefully your audience there's anything good in this um but definitely that's something that we really we really want um other big one is you know obviously setting goals like just you know i think that without clear goals and without you know without actually choosing who you want to be as far as that future self it's really easy to be wasteful in who you are and you can become a lot more if you actually like set goals and if you even like go through the process of becoming that person mm. uh, and so i think you know and then I, I think just like learning you know learning just constant learning um really opens you up you know whether that be through books through experiences through people um but i think that those things are kind of fundamentals and i, I think that you know if, if you're always you know if you're connected with god and if you're trying to you know become closer to him or you know however you define god and if you're continually seeking goals to become more, you'll, you're mm-hmm. going to grow a lot. You're going to, you know, if you have goals, you're going to be using your time well. You know, if you yeah. don't, you're going to be distracted a lot. And then if you're just constantly learning, you're going to actually become better at setting goals. And so uh, I wouldn't have had a PhD, wouldn't have had five kids, wouldn't be where I'm at. And, you know, there's people who are much farther than me, but those are kind of the keys from my perspective. Beautiful. 
connection to God, relationship with God, setting goals and constantly learning new experiences. Beautiful. Can you set, uh, as we wrap up, could you set a homework assignment? You know, I really want people to like immediately apply the, the lessons. Yes. The podcast, yes. Like, actual simple thing that people can literally yes. do right now. One thing that will make a difference. What's a homework? Yes. Yes. Get a journal if you don't have one and find some time and some space where you journal and how you journal really matter. You know, give yourself some space at some point, give yourself 20, 30 minutes to write about, I would say write about the, you know, and I can actually email you a bunch of prompts if you want. Actually the book has about 150 journaling prompts, Mm. but um, I would say write about from your perspective, the two to five events that you feel like have shaped you most. And especially in a negative way. Mm. And, And then think about, what, what it would take to change how you view these experiences, you know, like who you need to either reach, who you need to contact the conversations you need to have. It could be around people, you know, it could be, you know, something you need to forgive or let go of. It could be something you need to just get a new perspective on, but you know, whatever these three to, you know, two to five, whatever they are experiences are that are still negatively impacting you. Those things need to be shifted in some way. And so I would start working on those. And, And a big part of that, Again, all progress starts by telling the truth. You need to be open about these things. I mean, you need to start telling people that these things have impacted you and also talk about how you're ready to change, how you feel about these things and just ready to move on. Um, I think that's one big one is beginning to address the, the things that have impacted you worse and begin to open up about them and talk about them and, and be open, open and honest about how they've impacted you emotionally and how you feel about them mm-hmm. so that you can start to do the work of reframing. The other thing that I would invite readers to do or listeners is the biggest regrets that people have on their deathbed is that they weren't true to who they wanted to be. They didn't have the courage to be who they wanted to be. Instead, they were living up to the expectations of those around them. It's easy to get caught in a persona, caught in a role, mm-hmm. caught in a, caught in a rhythm. Mm-hmm. I would invite you also to write about in your journal, even just a few things that you would love to be doing with your life. And then I would invite you to start telling as many people that you're close to and comfortable with that that's what you want to do with yourself, that that's who you want to be. And that's what you want to be doing. Um, by just becoming a lot more open and honest about mm. first off the things that have hurt you the most or help, you know, and also being open and honest about the things that you really want, you're going to start to, you're going to actually start to experience some big shifts. Um, I mean, those would be my invitations and those are things that I would encourage you to do ASAP. Beautiful folks. You heard it. The homework assignment set by Ben Hardy journal, two to five events. And what do you really want? Uh, I'd love for you to email me folks, Coop Blackson at coopblackson.com. Uh, let me know your key insights and take away from today's episode with the amazing Ben Hardy. Personality isn't permanent. Willpower doesn't work. Check out those amazing books. Uh, I'm excited to read the personality one myself. Uh, ben, what's the best way uh, people can find out about you and your work and best website? Give it yeah. to me. Benjaminhardy.com is the website. You can find blog posts and, and other things there. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of free resources. Anyone who ultimately buys this book, we're giving away three free online courses. One is a course that just expounds upon this book, all the science and interesting ideas, a lot of the exercises. There's a journaling course that um, over 10,000 people have bought, honestly, uh, giving that away. And then a blogging course, um, which we've sold for over $1,000. Uh, it was a live event actually at Genius Network. And uh, that's like six hours of live training. Wow. On- on my blogging strategies that have allowed me to have over a hundred million views on my blogs. And so we give away a lot of stuff for free for anyone who buys the book. But uh, ultimately from my perspective, the most important thing actually is the book. And I believe that this will be very transformative and very helpful for you. So yeah, you can get the book anywhere you want, Amazon, Audible, just wherever you want to buy a book. Awesome. Ben, thank you for coming on. Thank you for pouring so much love into my audience and just being here. You are brother. Can't wait to see you soon folks. 
Benjamin Hardy, personality isn't permanent. I, I fully endorse this man. I mean, I spent time with him. He's the real deal. I uh, encourage you to check out his book. Go to his website. I will put all of the links in the show notes. Uh, also, do me a, do me a favor. Uh, download this episode. Share it on your social media. Share it with your friends. Buy the book. And let me know how you enjoy the book. And I can't wait to uh, connect with you all in the next episode of Soul Talk. Love now, everyone. Big hugs. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.